Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to our series of sermons on Jesus. This is an unusual series of sermons in that the way that I've structured them, we have an extended introduction followed by a song to set the tone for the topic of the day. And then we get into, I guess you'd say, the sermon proper. Obviously, we've edited out the songs. Anyway, there's a little heads up. Enjoy the sermon. Please pray with me. Father God in heaven, we're very much aware that as we open up your word, as it's read to us, as it's preached, as we hear it, that we are having a spiritual encounter, even even though it feels like the most ordinary, earthly, plain, familiar event, here we find the word of God. Here we trust the spirit of God is at work. And so, Father, we ask for your kingdom to grow and to expand and to flourish in and amongst us today as we have this ordinary spiritual encounter. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. By your word and spirit affect those things today, we pray. Amen. So from chapter 4, verse 35 of Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 35, that day when evening came, he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side, the other side of the lake, uh, the Sea of Galilee. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, not unlike is happening out there at this very moment, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, "'Teacher, don't you care if we drown?' He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So between Jesus and his disciples there, In those half a dozen verses, in fact, between Jesus and his disciples in the last four or so verses um, of that, there's this flurry of four questions. Did you spot it there? They barely even speak an answer to one another. This flurry of questions back and forth. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Verse 38, he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Verse 40, and finally, who is this? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. That's the one that I want to focus on today. Who is this? Who is this guy? We thought we knew who he was when we got into the boat on the other side of the lake, but now, who is this man in our midst? So last week, of course, our emphasis was on the humanness of Jesus, wasn't it? And we, I hope, uh, we managed to get back to a level footing with the people in his day, because the people in his day, of course, what did they go out to see? They went out to see a man. They went out to see a guy. Our emphasis was on the humanity of Jesus. Crowds encountered a man. They met a man, they saw a man, they heard and followed and watched, they scrutinised and debated, they questioned, they doubted and some of them believed a man, a guy, a human being very much like us. 
But unlike us, they didn't have two millennia, the people of his day, they didn't have two millennia of history, did they? Junking things up, of tradition, of culture and baggage and, you know, Christmas and Easter. I mean, we have public holidays about this man. They didn't have the art, they didn't have the hymns and the songs to strip away. Jesus was a guy. He was a guy who last week you'd go to a funeral with. He was a guy who this week you'd get into a boat with, like an actual boat to cross an actual lake to get to the actual other side. Do you see? The humanness of Jesus. But this week I want us to confront and I want us to lay hold of the spanner that Jesus repeatedly throws into the works. Human though he may be, he seems to inspire this question again and again, who is this man? Who is he? What kind of a man is this? Now, to set the the tone for us uh, in this uh, discussion today, I'm actually going to get us to sing like we did last week, you know how I kind of begin and then we sing. To set the tone, I'd like us to sing again. Um, Before we do, um, I want to be very upfront about the change of heart and the change of mind that I am trying to persuade you of today. So let me be perfectly upfront, and I say this perhaps to the more sceptical person, the less convinced. If you have tried perhaps in your life to maintain a bit of a respectable distance between you and Jesus, I want to tell you upfront the change that I'm trying to persuade you of today. Let me lay my cards on the table. I I put it to you in the words of C.S. Lewis. He once wrote this, he once wrote... I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. So this was Lewis's agenda and it happens to be mine for today. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That, says Lewis, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make up your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. Now, there's fighting words from C.S. Lewis, but I want to kind of lay... They're provocative, aren't they? It sounds like he's fixing for a fight uh, in those last couple of sentences there. But I think his premise is good. You read through the gospel stories like we're going to read one of today and you've got to just make up your mind. And for the Christians here, it's true, isn't it? At some point, as we have read through the gospels for ourselves, at some point we realise, I'm not just reading a biography of some guy. I'm not just reading the life story of some guy. I am reading the life story of God in the flesh. I'm reading the story where God wrote himself into the pages of human, dusty old Middle Eastern world history. That's the story that I'm reading. Who is this man? Well, I've come to make up my mind. And as we get a glimpse of his handiwork in the world, I think we start to get a glimmer of what life is about, what God is about, 
and what life under God in this world is about. As I said, I'd like us to sing to set the tone. Let's, let's get on to that. Is it, uh, let's sing O Holy Night. Is it too far from Christmas for us to be able to do that? I don't think so. I think we're gearing up for Christmas, aren't we? So we're going to sing a Christmas carol, O Holy Night. Let me tell you why I want to sing this one. For me, O Holy Night, it, it gets at the wonder. It gets at the awe of Christmas. I don't know, it'll conjure different things for different people, but for me, it's not just, oh, the thought that God came into the world as a baby, isn't that remarkable? No, but it gets that, it stirs the heart in that direction, do you know what I mean? I wonder if it does that for you. Anyway, let's uh, let's join together now and, and sing this wondrous song. Would you please stand? Thanks, Albie. Let's continue to, uh, we made it to the end of Mark chapter 4. And I'd like us to continue reading through chapter 5. Of course, when Mark wrote his gospel, there were no chapters and verses. He wrote the whole thing through. Uh, We've added in the verses and chapters to help us find our way so we know where to keep up. Um, Did you know that Mark almost definitely wrote his gospel first? You know, out of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John? Almost definitely. Pretty much all the scholars are united on that one. So sometime between AD 60 and 70, as the eyewitnesses were starting to get a bit long in the tooth... They put it down on paper uh, that it might find its way into our hands down the years and Mark seems to have beat the others to the punch. One other interesting thing about Mark, and this is going to help us right now, you'll find that Mark tends to bunch his stories together to make a point. Uh, So rather than just this happened and then that happened and then this other thing happened, Mark tends to go, well, I've raised this question, who is this man? Well, let me tell you a story that helps us to answer that. And so with who is this man from the end of chapter 4 ringing in our ears, then we turn to chapter 5, chapter 5 verse 1, to this troubling and troubled image there. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. May I just say, as I reflect on that and I guess the only hooks in my life that I have to relate that to, I'm really glad that I live in the 21st century. I'm really thankful for psych wards, I'm really thankful for doctors, I'm really glad that we're a bit more about mental illness, uh, a bit more aware and a bit better equipped uh, to medicate and to help. Now, that's not Mark's diagnosis, is it? Uh, What do we have in verse 2? When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit with an evil spirit, came from the tombs to meet him. In fact, mental health issues aren't Jesus' diagnosis either because in verse 8, we discover that Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, what? You anxiety disorder? No. Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Now, I'll get to, I'll comment a little bit more about that on a moment. But in terms of hooks in our life, the experiences that we've had, the things that we've seen for most of us in our life, this is kind of the thing that we relate it to. And he is in a, he's in a horrible state, this man. It is a pitiful state to be in. Mark has taken us to this point in Jesus' ministry where Jesus is confronted with this man 
whose life has, has been plunged into one of profound self-destruction. Profound. And it is sad, Mark tells us, no one could bind him anymore. Just those two words in, in verse 3, anymore. How many times have they tried exactly? And what exactly would that look like? Like how many people were involved in trying to pin this guy down to get the chains on him? I mean, it, it just, the skin crawls imagining the scene. No one could bind him anymore. He lived, verse 3 tells us, this man lived in the tombs. And Mark doesn't tell us why, but you've got to wonder, don't you? Why does he live in the tombs? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I reckon maybe this is just speculation. I imagine they drove him there. I mean, consider it. Would you want your kids playing in the street with this guy lurking around? How would you feel about your sisters or your wife run, going about their errands through the day with this guy lurking around? Drive him out to the tombs by force if necessary. Mark doesn't tell us why. I'm just speculating. And so, verse 5, night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. He has become a monster. He has become a menace. He has become an emblem of what can never be mended. What hope did this community have for this man? One of God's own children, a child of Adam and Eve, now lives like some feral, rabid animal among the tombs. And that is the stage, you see, that Mark sets to answer the question, who is this man, Jesus? When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Verse 5, night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted out at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. Now, if you met this man, if he ran up to you, say you'd stepped out of the boat uh, or I'd stepped out of the boat and he ran up to you, he ran up to me, what angle would you try for? What would your game plan be? What would you be trying to achieve? How would you approach a guy like this? Because let me say, I don't exactly leap to the evil spirit diagnosis, the demon diagnosis, do you? Um, if I got out of the boat and a broken man like this confronted me saying things like this, uh, acting things like that, looking, I mean, you'd be able to tell it from his look, wouldn't you? Looking like he does... I'd be asking, have you seen your doctor recently? Wouldn't we? These are the kinds of questions. I'm just trying to be practical and think it through uh, in, in, in reality. Have you seen your doctor recently? Have you stopped taking your meds? Have they changed your dose? Or if it's really bad, as it seems to be here, how about, how about we, I take you to the hospital? We'll just get you checked out. How about I go with you um, to the hospital? My point is, I don't leap to a spiritual diagnosis. I don't particularly recommend that any of us do, but can I challenge you with this thought? And especially if you're a little bit more sceptical of this whole spiritual angle, a little bit more sceptically minded, whether you're a Christian or not, tell me which diagnosis best fits the facts here? Which best fits the facts, medical or spiritual? Put your scepticism to work for a moment. We have the symptoms, don't we? We've seen him, we've had it described already. 
We have the symptoms, we have a diagnosis from Jesus that it's spiritual and by the way, if he is God, then he ought to know. Uh, We also have his treatment, if I can call it that, that's verse 8, we have the treatment, come out of this man, you evil spirit, just a word, not unlike quiet, be still to the wind and the waves. And we have the outcome. So we've got the, uh, uh, we've got the um, symptoms, the diagnosis, the treatment and the outcome. Now let's keep reading and see what comes here. But I appeal to you, please, what better explanation is there that fits the facts as we have them here than the one given? That by an act of God, this shell of a man has been pieced back, to be, back together spiritually. So, if you're a bit sceptically minded, keep reading with me, please. We'll we'll pick it up again from verse 7. He shouted, you remember, at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said, come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000, did you catch that, 2,000 pigs? A herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. I've got to say, what is the deal with that pig business? Is that the weirdest bit in this entire story, the pigs? I was seriously scratching my head on that one. We could pass it by and not even touch it. In a sense, I don't think it adds a whole heap. But I actually found that I came across this comment and I thought I'd share it with you because it helped things to click. I was wondering why on earth would Mark include that paragraph there? He doesn't need to. The story makes sense without it. So what does it add? I was reading this expert on, um, on Mark's gospel, a bloke named William Lane. And his explanation actually made a whole heap of sense. I'd like to share it with you. It shines light on what the demons were about. It shines light on what Jesus was about. Here's Lane. He says, What must be seen above all else is that the fate of the swine demonstrates the ultimate intention of the demons with respect to the man that they had possessed. read that again. What must be seen above all else is that the fate of the swine demonstrates the ultimate intention of the demons with respect to the man they had possessed. It is their purpose to destroy the creation of God and halted in their destruction of a man, they fulfilled their purpose with the swine. Does that make some sense? So contrast then this demonic purpose that has been uh, allowed free reign in the lives or in rather the deaths of these pigs, contrast that with what we see then of this life's man, pieced together in Jesus. So verse 14, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind and they were afraid. Those who'd seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. 
plead with him why? (laughs) Because what kind of power is this? Afraid why? Because if my theory is right, these were the people who had pinned this man to the ground to get chains on him. They knew this man's power under the influence of these demons. They are the ones who had feared for their wives and daughters and sisters for this man out in the tombs and this Jesus somehow had the power to make him calmly sit by? What kind of spiritual giant had blown into their midst across the Sea of Galilee and was now sitting amongst them? A witch doctor, a medium, a spiritist, a a demigod? Who is this man? It's interesting, the the former demoniac, the, the man who had been possessed, he's formed his own opinion as to this power in their midst. He's formed his own opinion about who is this man. So from verse 17, the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus didn't let him, but said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Just, Just grab that command with me, will you? Go home to your family There he is, putting life and family, society back together. This man had lived out amongst the tombs. He says, no, I'm putting your life back together here, not destroying the creation of God, but reforming it. Go home to your family and get this, tell them how much the Lord has done for you. How did he go with that? Verse 20, so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, that's the cities, how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. Go and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. So he went and told them how much Jesus had done for him. Do you realise, I know it's a little bit uh, difficult when I've just picked out some random passage uh, from Mark's Gospel, but do you realise the only people in Mark's Gospel so far who have twigged to who Jesus is are demon-possessed up to this point. Did that strike you as odd when uh, Jesus, he comes fresh across the sea in this boat with his disciples, fresh across the sea, uh, and how on earth does this crazy from the tombs, who probably hadn't had a level conversation with anyone in years, how on earth can he come straight up to Jesus and get his identity so right when no one else has been talking to him? What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? How does that happen? Unless, of course... He is possessed by a spiritual being who knows exactly who the Son of God is when he walks right up to him. Well, the penny finally drops for this man, the former demon-possessed as well. Even when the demons are gone, here is a man who can command my demons to go. Here is a man who doesn't want me drowned in the sea, who doesn't want to find me one day floating in the water. He wants me to be whole again. He wants me to be home again. Go and tell how much the Lord has done for you. Well, I'll go and tell how much Jesus has done for me. To conclude, this is uh, just one little encounter in the Gospel stories where we see this question answered, who is this man? One little encounter and if you're not thoroughly convinced that Jesus was God himself walking the earth... And I sincerely want you to get to that point. I plead with you, read the rest of the stories. 
You've got to read through these gospel stories and discover this man for yourself. Use your scepticism by all means, please do. Weigh the facts. But can I give you this word of warning as well as we close? I think there are lots of people who come to the point where they can say, yep, Jesus really is God. I think there are plenty of people who come to that point with their heads, do you see? I think I've known people who get there with their heads and they'd say, well, I can't, he's not a demon, he's not a lunatic, I guess he must be God himself. With their heads, they get there. But with their hearts? Well, with their hearts and lives, they stall, kind of like a car, you know? The reality is there, the gap in the traffic is there, all they've got to do is go. All they've got to do is recognise him as Lord of their life. The gap in the traffic is there, but they're stalled at the intersection. I think that happens too many times. People are there with their heads, but with their hearts. And I want to say, friends, don't let that happen. You look at this man, as Jesus, verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him, begged to go with him. If he is God, I want to say, go with him. If he is God, go with him. Can I pray with you? Our Father in heaven, when we are face to face with the the most broken, we throw up our hands, we don't quite know what to do. But we look upon Jesus and his confrontation with this man, this putting back together of his life, the spiritual diagnosis that he comes up with, the spiritual healing. Who else could he be? Father, we thank you for the coming of the Lord Jesus, not just because it makes a great story, not just because it gives us Christmas and so many other good things besides. But we thank you that we had, for a time, God in our very midst. And we thank you that even by your Spirit now, we have God in our very midst. Lord, please would you empower us to weigh that, not just with our minds, but with our hearts. Would you have us please weigh, not just the humanity of Jesus, but his divinity, the fact that he is God, And if he is God, then he is God over our lives, he's God over our world. We do not serve ourselves as the highest end in life, we serve him. Lord God, would you impress that, please, uh, upon our hearts, upon our minds. May our weak reflect it. May the way we use our words reflect it. May the way we use our money reflect that fact. Father, you have so much work to do in our lives. We're so far from where we need to be, want to be, ought to be and will be by the power of your Spirit. So please, Father, by your mercy, may we reflect the truth that he is man, yes, and he is God. In Jesus' name, Amen.